0: 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. Before we get there, a quick recap of yesterday as you guys are turning. Stories shape us more than rules, more than anything else in this world. That's why stories are so important. Stories matter in our lives. We talked about three things. Your life is a story. Your story needs to be shared with others. And your story should be shaped by God's story. And that includes reading our Bible every single day. We talked about the importance of that. That reading our Bible is like running a marathon, not like running a sprint. You need to pace yourself. But there is an importance to reading and being in God's Word every single day. Now, we also mentioned that, that about how God loves, loves stories because he is the great storyteller. But there is another storyteller that I want to talk about today. He is a master storyteller. And we see him in Genesis chapter 3 when he comes into the garden and he tells a story to Adam and Eve and convinces them to eat the fruit that God told them not to eat. And from that point on, all creation was broken and ruined and it fell under the curse because Satan loves to tell stories too. And you need to be aware of that. So what I want to talk about this morning is that there are stories out there that the world is trying to tell to us that are false stories, false narratives. And I want you to have your radar up. I want you to have your guard up to be aware of those stories when they start creeping into the the movies and the shows and the books and the classrooms and the things that you are going to be immersed in. You need to be aware of these stories. You need to have wisdom in order to recognize them. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. Be sober-minded, be watchful. God, we do ask that you would give us strength and wisdom to recognize our adversary, the devil, and to resist him. And Lord, we pray that you would guide us and help us to focus right now on this lesson. God, I pray that you would give me words. And Lord, open the hearts of everyone in here so that they would receive it. Because my words are not enough. And so we ask that your spirit would move among us and that you would help us to see more clearly the stories of this world, and you would help us to measure them against the story of Scripture. In Christ's name, amen. I want you to see how the world is using false stories to shape us. So there was a statistic that came out a few years ago that said that studies show customers are 63% more likely to buy a product due to a testimonial. In other words, a testimonial is like someone telling a story about a product. And if someone tells a story about a product, customers are 63% more likely to buy it. So there were these two guys a few years ago who decided to run an experiment. Rob Walker and Joshua Glenn wanted to see if they could resell cheap knickknacks on eBay. And what they did was they went around to antique stores and thrift thrift shops, and they bought a bunch of these little like cheap, just nothing items. And the rule was these items couldn't have any use. Like it had to be like something that was just like like a little wooden horse you'd put on a mantle or a garden gnome, like something that was completely worthless that you couldn't find any use for. And they spent $129 buying hundreds of these little items for like a quarter each or a dime each or whatever. And then they hired 200 creative writers to come in and write fake stories about each one. Some of them would be funny stories. Some would be sad. Some would be sentimental. Like, like there might be a story that said, oh, I used to work in the garden every day with my mom, and one day I accidentally broke the garden gnome with my shovel, but we went back inside and we glued it together, and it still sat in our garden for 30 years, and it's just a sweet memory for me, but I'm selling it now on eBay and blah, blah, blah. Okay, completely fake, but just a sweet sentimental story. And they attached stories to every single object and sold them on eBay. And they've turned $129 into over $8,000 worth of profit with all of these items. $8,000 off of fake stories. None of them were real. Which goes to show us that the world is not trying to sell you stuff. It's trying to sell you stories. And you need to be aware of the world is trying to sell us stories because stories are the things that move us and drive us and shape us and mold us more than anything else in this world. So I want to spend a little bit of time this morning talking through some of the false stories that this world is telling us, some of the things that I think are most prevalent in our culture right now, the stories that are like immersed in our movies and shows and books and everything, news, all of that. So, we're going to go through five different stories. Number one, the first fault story we're going to talk about listen to your heart. Listen to your heart. How many of y'all have seen the movie Moana? Okay. I, I like Moana. I've seen it because we have little kids. Um, Moana is a, it's a good movie, it's got great music, it's a lot of fun. Uh, there's also plenty not to like about Moana, which by the way, this is a side note. We'll talk a little bit more about this tomorrow, but when it comes to stories, a lot of times we tend to be really black and white. Like if there's anything wrong or like off color in it, we'll, we'll say that, no, we can't watch that. It's not good. I, what I would rather you do is to have wisdom to sift through the good and the bad in every story, because there, there's only one perfect story. Okay. So every story is going to have good and bad. And Moana is a good example of that. There's plenty to like about it. There's plenty not to like about it. So let's talk about the part that we shouldn't like. Moana is this little girl who lives on an island in somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, her father is the chief of this village. And nobody's ever left the island. They have one rule. You can't go beyond the reef out there, out into the open ocean. So everybody just stays put, they're happy, they're content. Moana's dad wants Moana to grow up and be the new chief of this village. Well, Moana is torn because here she has this chance to serve her community and to lead really well. But in her heart, what she really wants to do is go beyond the reef and explore, which... By the way, remember what we said yesterday? Kids just don't follow rules. Okay, so basically they have one rule, don't go beyond the reef. And what does Moana want to do? I want to go beyond the reef, okay? So there's just something inside of her that wants to go out and explore. And she says this in one of her songs. I can lead with pride. I can make us strong. I'll be satisfied if I play along. But the voice inside sings a different song. What is wrong with me? And then in walks the grandmother who's kind of the kooky old outcast of the story, but Disney loves kooky old outcasts, so she's actually the voice of reason in the story, even though she's the kooky old outcast. And she says this to Moana. You are your father's daughter, stubbornness and pride. Mind what he says, but remember, you may hear a voice inside. When that voice starts to whisper, follow the farthest star. Moana, that voice inside is who you are. Grandma was lying. Okay, because that is not (laughs) true. It's not true. That voice inside of you is not who you are. But that's what Disney wants you to think. And you need to be aware of that. Okay? Basically, the grandmother is saying, like, it's good to listen to your father. It's good to, like, want to stay and serve your community. But it's more important to listen to that little voice inside of you, to listen to your heart, because your heart will never steer you wrong. You want to know what the Bible says about that? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Let me read that again. The heart is deceitful not just above some things. The heart is deceitful above everything, all things. There's nothing more deceitful than your heart. And your heart is desperately sick and nobody can understand it. So that's the thing that you need to listen to and follow for advice for the rest of your life, okay? No. Like, that's the worst advice anybody could give you to follow your heart or listen to that little voice inside of you, okay? Your heart is corrupted by sin. The Bible tells us that over and over again, that our hearts have fallen under the curse. Our hearts are desperately sick. They are lying to us. And we need another path of wisdom. And what is that path? It is this. God's story you know what the more we immerse ourselves into God's story the more it will begin to shape and mold our heart and that is what sanctification looks like is when our hearts are actually molded after Christ and we begin to follow him and we begin to hear the Holy Spirit speaking through his word into our hearts that's what it means to grow in Christ This whole advice of like, you know, just follow your gut or listen to your heart or listen to that little voice inside of you or that little voice inside of you, that's who you are. Way too many young people are following that advice and they are finding their identities in this little voice inside of them and then they're walking away wondering, why am I not satisfied right now? There's something wrong with me. I can't figure out which voice I'm supposed to listen to. I'll just listen to the little voice inside of me. And I'll take that as the law. When all along they don't realize that that voice inside of them is deceitful above all things. Listen to God's word, not to that little voice inside of you. And let God's word shape your heart and sanctify you. So that's the first lie. Listen to your heart. The second lie you are your own hero. You are your own hero. I'm going to pick on Disney this morning. Uh, There's another show that my kids like to watch called The Lion Guard, which is kind of the spinoff of The Lion King. And there's this uh, character named Beshti who's a hippo. And this this hippo is talking to an elephant one day, the little baby elephant who's like super insecure and really feels out of place because this elephant's not as big or strong as the other ones. And and Beshti the hippo is singing a song to this elephant, trying to encourage the elephant. And this is what Beshti says. No need to worry. Hold your head up with pride. Believe in yourself. There's no reason to hide. It's there within you, the hero inside. That is also not true. You have no hero inside of you that is just going to save you, all right? The advice that we get to just like kind of pick ourselves up by the bootstraps when life gets hard and just keep plugging along, that you can save yourself, that you don't need somebody else out there to save you, that's a lie. But that's what every modern movie and TV show wants us to believe. They want, they want, they have this empowering narrative where you can be your own hero and you can save yourself. Guys, I'm telling you that's not true. You want proof? Let me tell you a story. About a year and a half ago, I started working for RYM, and my first day on the job, we were at um, we were in Nashville, Tennessee doing a youth leader training conference, and the first task that my bosses gave me as an employee of RYM was this. They said, Joe, we need you. This is really important. We need you to go to the grocery store, get two gallons of ice cream, bring it back, and put it in the freezer. I was like, I think I can handle that. So thanks for believing in me. I go to the grocery store, get two gallons of ice cream, bring it back. Nobody's shown up yet, uh, and, and the dining hall is completely empty. So I walk in. I go to the kitchen, which is this big like industrial-sized kitchen. All the lights are off, but there's music playing somewhere in the back, like on a radio. So I walk in, and I go, hello? No answer. Hello? holding the ice cream. I kind of fiddle around with my elbow on the wall. I find the light switch and I flick it on. And there in front of me is this guy just standing there, staring at me in the dark. Red flags should have been going off in my mind right now, but I just kind of ignored them. And I went, oh, hey, uh, I, I need, um, I need to, to put this ice cream somewhere. You got a place I can put it? And he stares at me for another awkward five seconds or so. And then he says... You can put it in my freezer. He turns around and starts walking. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I'm just going to follow this guy down these long, dark corridors of this industrial-sized kitchen with sharp cutlery and utensils everywhere. Okay, let's do this. (laughs) And so I follow him, and he leads me to the back to this walk-in refrigerator. And then we go through that to another door that leads to the walk-in freezer. He opens it up, and there's shelves lining the walls, and there's an empty spot in the back. And he says, you can put it back there. So I walk over, I put the first gallon up, reach down, grab the second gallon, put it up, turn around, the door is closed, and the guy is gone. Now, I was actually kind of giggling to myself in this moment, because in my head I'm thinking, if this were a horror movie, the door would be locked and like this this would be where I would die, you know? But this is real life. Things like that don't happen in real life. And I'm kind of saying this just to kind of make myself feel a little bit better about the situation. And as I'm walking over, kind of smiling and laughing a little bit, I grab the door handle and I pull on it and it doesn't budge. And that's when I realize he locked me in the freezer. <laughs> I'm starting to panic a little bit right now. Starting to freak out, but I got my wits about me still, and I remember I've got a phone in my pocket. I'm going to pull it out. I'm going to call my boss. I'm going to say, get down here to the kitchen, unlock this door, let me out, arrest that man, and then we can just go about our day. I pull out my phone, and in the top left corner, it reads, of course I don't have service because I'm in an airtight metal container in the middle of nowhere and now I realize I have no way of communicating with the outside world and I'm stuck in a walk-in freezer and there is no other way out. There is no window. The door is sealed shut and I really start to panic at this point and I'm thinking this is it? This is how I go? All the ways I thought I would die, I didn't imagine this. Like They're going to find my cold, lifeless body clutching a half-eaten gallon of ice cream in the back (laughs) corner of a walk-in freezer at Camp Widgety Wagon.
1: Because the last thing
0: I'm going to do before I freeze to death is eat as much ice cream as I possibly can. I am panicking at this point, and all I can think to do is just run up, and just start pounding on the door and I'm like, help! Let me out! Somebody help me! I'm locked in the freezer! Help me! I'm screaming as loud as I can. This goes on for like 60 seconds, which is a really long time when you think you're about to freeze to death, by the way. <laughs> and all of a sudden I hear somebody fidgeting on the other side of the door and I get really quiet. And I hear this Whoa! of the vacuum seal release. This waft of warm air washes over me and the door opens, and there standing before me is the guy. And I quickly stick my foot in the door so he can't close it again. And I said, dude, what are you doing? You locked me in the freezer. I've been pulling and pulling on the door and it wouldn't budge. And he looks at me and says, did you try pushing it? So turns out,
1: the door
0: to the walk-in freezer was a push and not a pull, and in my panic, I failed to try the only other option that was happening. Guys, I had two choices. I could either pull or push. I went with a pulling method, that didn't work, and I said, that's it, I'm going to die in here. I just lost it, okay? I say that to tell you that... This whole idea that we can be our own heroes and we can save ourselves is completely false because I can't even rescue myself from an unlocked freezer.
1: What in the world makes me think that
0: I can be my own hero? Here's what the fall has done. Here's what sin has done to us. It has actually made us stupid, okay? It has corrupted not only our hearts but our minds, and it has made us stupid, and we are incapable of saving ourselves. This is why you need a hero. This is why we all need a hero outside of ourselves because we can't save ourselves Uh, one of the things i actually love about the marvel movies as i mentioned yesterday is that they actually tell a story that you can't save yourself but there is a hero out there who is capable of saving you and they will do it oftentimes at great cost to themselves that's a great story okay so i want you to recognize the differences in these stories The stories out there that tell you that you just need to be your own hero, it's a bad story. It's not true. And you don't need to believe that. But the stories that tell you that there is a hero outside of you who will save you, who is more capable than you, who is stronger than you, that you can rely on, that's the gospel. That's the story we need to listen to. You are not your own hero. Third point. Outward appearance is everything. That's the third lie that we're gonna talk about. Outward appearance is everything. i <clears> to <throat> tell you another story. When I first moved to Houston, I owned a 2007 white Pontiac Grand Prix. But I also lived in a pretty rough neighborhood, and like in the first month that I lived in this apartment complex, my car got broken into like three times. And one time somebody actually stripped the keyhole like to get into my door and that was the only keyhole. I didn't have one on the passenger side or the trunk so my key wouldn't work to unlock the door. And then the battery in my clicker stopped working. I probably could have gone and replaced the battery but I was young and I was stupid and I don't do very well with locks as you can already see from it's <laughs> <door. laughs> So I just let it go and, and basically I told myself, okay, I can't lock my car door anymore. Anywhere I go, I have to leave it unlocked all the time. So one night, I go to Walmart to pick up a few things. It's kind of late at night. Parking lot's fairly empty. I walk out with my groceries, and my car was parked under this this lamp lighting up the parking lot, so it was very well lit in that spot. And I look up, and there's this woman sitting in my driver's seat trying to crank my engine. My first thought is, oh, she's in the wrong car. Like, she has a car like mine. She mistakenly got in mine instead. Then she looks up at me and sees me staring at her and makes eye contact with me and gives me this look like a kid who just got caught with her hand in the cookie jar. And then I realized she's stealing my car right in front of me because she looks at me and goes and starts trying to crank the engine and, like, going faster and faster. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. So I start walking towards her. She looks up and gets even more panicked and is like... Gosh, she's trying to crank the engine, and I'm freaking out. I'm like, she's stealing my car right in front of me. And so I drop my groceries, and I take off sprinting. And then I see her fiddling with the door trying to find the lock to lock me out. And little does she know just how effective that will be because I'm incapable of unlocking my own door at this point. (laughs) And I'm sprinting as fast as I can. I grab the handle right before she can lock it, and I yank it open. And she reaches behind her and grabs a phone. <laughs> pulls it out and says, "Stop her! I'll call the cops." And I said, "You stop her! I'll call the cops." <laughs> and she said, "What are you talking about?" I said, "You're stealing my car." She said, "This isn't your car. It's my." Ca- oh, and she looks around and goes, "This isn't my car." I said, "Yeah, it's mine." So basically, it was a huge misunderstanding. I thought she was stealing my car. She thought I was coming to attack her in the middle of a dark parking lot. (laughs) We giggled about it a little bit and kind of like, oh, (laughs) everybody's okay. And she gets up and she starts walking over to her car that's like two aisles over. Everything's fine. Then I sit down in the driver's seat and the seat has been moved up like 10 inches. The steering wheel has been lowered. The rear-view mirror has been adjusted, and the side mirrors have been angled inward. I'm thinking, she did all this? And it didn't once occur to her that maybe she was in the wrong car? (laughs) And then I hear a knock at the window, and I roll it down. It's her, and she says, I'm sorry. Can I get my groceries out of your truck? (laughs) I had, like, a guitar and basketball shoes in there. None of that tipped her off.
1: None of that. Like, she
0: just went, basically, she just said, like, none of this feels right, but... Yeah, it, it, it's my car, that's fine. I, the, the seat's not where I left it, the steering wheel's off, the mirrors, like there's cups over here that I didn't leave, but this is my car. None of that tipped her off. And that, I, I look back on that now and I actually think, I have a little more sympathy for it because I actually think that's quite human to have the reaction that she had. Because here's what she did. She walked out and she saw a white Pontiac Grand Prix that looked like hers and just completely ignored everything on the inside that should have been pointing her to the truth. And isn't that what we do every day? We get so obsessed with the outward appearance of something that we will completely ignore all the things on the inside that should be pointing us to the truth. Because we are a culture that is obsessed with outward appearance. 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, the Lord looks on Let's talk about the selfie generation for a second. A Couple years ago, CNN reported that 55% of plastic surgeons reported seeing patients who only wanted to look better in selfies. That was the whole reason they went to see a plastic surgeon is because they wanted to look better in selfies, and that's it. CNN also reported in this same, uh, in this same article, they talked about a new clinical term this is not just some like made up word that's like kind of buzzing around the internet. It's an actual clinical psychological term called Snapchat dysmorphia. Here's what it means. When you're on Snapchat or Instagram or whatever, you have these filters you can put your photos through, your selfies through. And what happens is you, the more you do that, the more you begin to see this better looking version of yourself staring back at you. And it actually creates this mental block called Snapchat dysmorphia which actually makes you think that this is what you're supposed to look like all the time. And it affects our own self-image. That's that's what this self-regeneration social media thing has done. It is making us obsessed with our outward appearance. And you know how they're doing this? Through stories, believe it or not. In 2016, Instagram copied Snapchat, and they introduced the stories section of their homepage, which basically means you could... You could like take a picture or video of yourself and post it up on the story section and keep adding to that story, but eventually it would disappear in 24 hours. Since introducing the story section of their homepage, Instagram has added 600 million new users in three years. And over 400 million users say that they use Instagram stories on a daily basis. 400 million people say that they use it not just sometimes, but every single day stop it. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that this kind of social media world that has made us so obsessed with outward appearance is being driven by stories of all things. I find that fascinating. We are shaped and molded by stories. And this story that tells us that outward appearance is most important, that that's everything, that is a prevalent story in our culture, but it is a lie. And now listen... Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that social media is bad and you all need to go delete your Instagram accounts. I have Instagram, okay? Like, this stuff is fine. But you need to be aware and you need to have wisdom to recognize the false narratives that are being presented inside social media because I'm just going to tell you, if your enemy, the devil, is a roaring lion looking to devour someone, then social media is like the savannah. It is where he is most at home. It is where he feels most comfortable because there is a lot of prey for him to devour in that world. And you need to have your guard up. Honestly, Like you need to have your guard up if you're going to meander through the world of social media. Because it is a world that will change your mindset and make you think that outward appearance is everything. And one of the ways, I'll just give you practically, one of the ways I would encourage you to, um, to combat that is to have accountability. To have people who can talk to you about what you're doing and looking at on social media. You just need to have accountability. You need to have people in your life that you can tell your story to. Not just your Instagram story, but your real story, okay? Outward appearance is not everything. Okay, number four. <clears throat> Life is an individual journey. This is the fourth lie we're going to talk about. Life is an individual journey. There's a guy named David Brooks who writes for the New York Times. He wrote an article back in March called Five Lies Our Culture is Telling Us. And one of those lies he mentioned was this one, Life is an Individual Journey. He actually quoted the Dr. Seuss book, uh, Oh, the Places You'll Go, as the lie that is driving our culture. Because it basically presents this idea that life is all about <clears throat> racking up experiences, not responsibilities. Life is all about racking up respe- experiences, not responsibilities. That's a lie that our culture wants us to believe. And it's a lie that is being thrown at you guys, especially right now in high school, in this resume building world that you're in. Because this is what life is about for you guys. This is what most schools and just kind of the culture wants you to think that life is about. That life is about you having the most incredible experiences that you can write down on a resume to show to a college so that you can get into the best college, so that one day you can get a better job, so that one day you can have a good house and a nice car and a good family. You're going to work, work, work to accumulate this wealth in this little empire, and it's going to take up so much of your time that maybe you won't spend as much time with your family, but you're going to justify that by saying, okay, every so often we're going to go on these elaborate vacations and they're going to be great, and I'm going to go for quality time, not quantity time. And we're going to have this awesome time. But as soon as the vacation's over, I'm back to the grindstone. And I work, work, work. And I repeat this cycle year in and year out until eventually I retire. And then what happens when I retire? I go find more cool experiences. And I travel even more. Like, this is what the world wants you to think that life is about. I'm telling you it's not. Life is not about racking up cool experiences. It's about serving and gaining responsibilities. In fact, David Brooks says this. In this article, this is a secular article. It's not written from a Christian perspective. But he says that studies have shown that people who live a small, contented life, serving in one place for a long period of time and gaining responsibilities, those people live a much more fulfilling life than the people who kind of travel unattached and say that life is this individual journey where I don't, I don't, I'm not tied down to anybody or any place or anything, I'm just gonna go do what I wanna do. The people who actually do tie themselves down and gain responsibilities in life and serve, those people, studies have shown, actually live a more fulfilling life because that's actually more in line with the way God made us. God made us to serve, to be part of a community, to love those around us, to give ourselves up the people around us, to put other people ahead of ourselves. And when we do that, we actually become more fulfilled because we become more in line with who Jesus made us to be. And look, I'm not saying again that vacations are bad or finding fun experiences are bad. Look, you guys are here. You're at the beach. You're having this awesome experience that you only get once a year. Like This is great. You need times like this. I'm just saying that life is not about This Life is more about when you get back home and you get into that day-to-day grind and what sort of responsibilities do you rack up and what sort of service do you gain and how do you lay your own life down for the people around you, for the people in your community. And why is that what life is all about? Because that's how Jesus came to us. Russ talked about this last night and the night before, that, that Jesus came and loved us as his neighbors in ways that we don't love our own neighbors and through his goodness and grace we see how we are supposed to love and serve the people around us. life is not an individual journey it's a journey where we gather together and serve those around us. all right number five quick recap of the lies that we've talked about number one listen to your heart that's a lie number two you are your own hero that's a lie number three outward appearance is everything that's a lie Number four, life is an individual journey. That is also a lie. Number five, this is one that I think might be one of the most important that you could hear right now in this day and age. The fifth lie that I want to talk about is that the Bible is unreliable. This is something your enemy wants you to believe and something the world mainly our culture really wants you to believe is that the Bible is untrustworthy, it's unreliable. And look, I'll just say this. Some of you may be having those thoughts right now in this room. You may be sitting there thinking like, okay, I'm here at this conference that is all about Jesus and it's all about the Bible and I keep hearing people talk about the Bible, but I'm not even sure if I believe the Bible because there's some pretty fantastic elements in this Bible that are really hard to believe. And I'm not sure that I can buy into it and here we are just talking about the Bible over and over again. But how am I supposed to really trust this book when it's so old and there's so many weird stories in it? I want to give you some practical advice to take away of why you can trust the Bible. And look, it may not convince you, but it's something for you to think about and study on your own as you go further. And I'm never going to cover like, all the reasons why the Bible is true or isn't. Okay? But for this short amount of time, I want to give you two things to think about. And this may sound a little bit like a history lesson, but that's, you know, you came to a class about stories. Okay? So you're going to get some history. Um, two things, manuscripts and eyewitness accounts. Number one, manuscripts. What are manuscripts? Manuscripts are copies of a document that was written down. And so what historians will do is they'll look at an ancient document, and, and if they want to dis- decipher whether or not this document is trustworthy or true, they want to see how many manuscripts are circulating of that document during that time period. Because the more copies something had, the more you could compare the copies and see how accurate they were, and the more you could see how widely circulated it was so that it could be like judged based on eyewitness accounts. So the more manuscripts something has the more historians will look at that and say, yes, that's authentic. Let me give you a few numbers just to throw out. You don't have to remember this. I'm just giving you a frame of reference. A Greek historian named Herodotus has 109 existing manuscripts of his work of history that exist from his time period. 109. Historians look at that and say, yeah, that's enough. We can trust it. Livy has 150. Tacitus, a Roman historian, has 33 and still, historians will look at that 33 manuscripts from his time period that they've discovered, and they say, that's enough, it's authentic, we can trust it. Pliny the Elder, a Roman historian from the first century, has 200 manuscripts of his work of history. Okay, those numbers, 109, 150, 33, 200. Historians look back on that and say, those numbers are high enough, we can trust them, it's good. It is authentic work of history. Do want you to know how many... Manuscripts of the New Testament that we have right now, over 18,000. And over 42,000 scrolls, codices, and manuscripts of the Old Testament. It's over 60,000 manuscripts and copies of the Bible that exist today that we have uncovered that were written during that time period, circulating within that dated time. 60,000 compared to 109. But historians will still look at the Bible and say, that's not trustworthy. You can't believe it. There's a guy named John Warwick Montgomery who says this. To be skeptical of the scriptures is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity. For no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the scriptures. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you can't believe the Bible, then you can't believe anything that was written in that time period. Because there is no book In history, that is as well documented as the Bible, and it's not even close. Manuscripts give us evidence that this book is trustworthy. But let's go even further. Let's talk about eyewitness accounts. First off, let's talk about Jesus. Because there are plenty of people out there who want you to believe that Jesus actually never even existed, that he wasn't a real person in history. But we have 18, at least right now, we have 18 different sources from the first century that tell us that Jesus was a real person? 18 sources. 12 of those sources are non-Christian. So two-thirds of the sources that say Jesus was a real person, two-thirds of them aren't even Christian sources. In other words, we have more evidence that Jesus existed than we do that Julius Caesar existed. That's crazy. And people still doubt whether or not Jesus actually walked on this earth. So let's just establish this fact right now. Jesus was a real person, okay? A real person in space-time in history. Let's start with that. Let's talk about the eyewitness accounts of Jesus. Who were the first people who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead? Women. women. That's a big deal because in that day and age, in first century Palestine, women were considered second-class citizens, and their testimony was not even admissible in court. They could not testify in court because they were considered second-class citizens. So, if the disciples are making up a story about Jesus rising from the dead, they are not going to say that women were the first people who saw him. They would never say that. The only reason they would say that is because it's actually true. It's because that's actually the way it happened. <laughs> Let's also talk about the enemies of Jesus. Jesus. There were first century Jews who wrote down in the Babylonian Talmud that Jesus was a sorcerer who led Israel astray because the Jews hated Jesus because he started a new religion, essentially. They said that he was a sorcerer who led Israel astray. That's fascinating. Because you would think that if someone was trying to disprove who Jesus was, they would just say, hey, you know all those miracles that the disciples talked about? Those aren't true. They never really happened. They couldn't say that. Why? Because there were too many eyewitnesses who saw it happen. And they knew they would have been laughed out of the gates. They knew that the stuff Jesus did was real, and so they had to explain it in a different way. And what did they say? Oh, he was was a sorcerer. He was a sorcerer. Dark magic. He led Israel astray. If the enemies of Jesus had to call Jesus a sorcerer, then it's pretty fair to believe that something miraculous was happening. That something miraculous was happening with Jesus. And lastly, let's talk about the number of eyewitnesses. All it takes is one eyewitness in a courtroom today to sway a jury's vote, just one eyewitness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that at one point Jesus appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses at one time after he rose from the dead. 500 people saw him after he rose from the dead. And then Paul says this. He doubles down on it. He says, many of whom are still alive today. In other words, Paul is inviting you to doubt him. He's inviting you to question him. Because he's saying, I know you don't want to believe that 500 people saw Jesus rise from the dead. But a lot of those people are still alive today. You can go talk to them. I'm listening to a podcast right now about a, a murder that took place in Mississippi back in the 90s. And this investigative journalist is going in and trying to discover, like, did this guy really do it? Is it true? And she's trying to uncover new evidence. And the way she goes about doing it is this. She goes into the town, and she interviews the people who were there on that day. And she talks to the people who knew the guy who was convicted. And said, tell me what you knew about him. Tell me what you saw that day. And some people will say, well, I saw this. Or some people will say, well, I wasn't there, but so-and-so was there. You need to go talk to him, so she'll go talk to this person eyewitness account is so vital that it drives the actual narrative. Paul is doing the same thing in 1 Corinthians. He's saying, look, I know you don't believe me that 500 people saw Jesus rise from the dead, but most of those people are still alive today. Just go talk to them. Go ask them what they saw. Paul is inviting you to doubt because he knows that it's true. So let's back up for a second. I'm closing with this. I want you to get the big picture of what I'm saying here, of why you can believe the Bible. Jesus was a real person. History says so. 500 people saw Jesus rise from the dead. Which means that Jesus is who he says he was. Jesus believed in scriptures. And if Jesus is who he says he was, you can believe the scriptures too. You see what I did there? That is a logical line of reasoning that I just gave you. That is not some fantastic element. I'm not just pulling out fairy tales to try to get you to believe in this feeling. Like, like you know, I know that it's true because it just feels right. I'm not saying any of that. I'm giving you a logical line of reasoning. Jesus was real. Five hundred people saw him rise from the dead. That means that Jesus is who he says he was. Jesus believed the scriptures so you can believe the scriptures too. It's all real, guys. It's real. And history proves it. But the world doesn't want us to believe this. And I need you to know that this book is reliable. And I'm going to close with this. Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. Jesus has been teaching the scriptures to everyone around him. It says this in verse 28. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. What does a scribe do? A scribe copies down what someone else says. But what is the root word of authority? I bet you can figure this out. Author. Author. You know what Matthew's saying? Guys, this is amazing. Closing with this Matthew is saying that Jesus taught the scriptures. Not like somebody who copied them down, but he taught the scriptures as if he wrote them. Because he did. He's the author. We're going to talk about that on the last day. In the meantime, thank you so much. You guys have been great. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and the fact that it presents the truth to us so that we can know you better and so that we can also know how the created world is supposed to work the order of things, and so that we can know the lies of the enemy when we compare them to the truth of Scripture. God, I pray that you would give us faith, because all the facts in the world can't actually lead us to believe in you. We have to have faith, because in this life we walk by faith, not by sight. And so I pray that you would give us that faith and come and meet with us and drive home your story into our hearts, and we ask this in Christ's name. Thank you, guys.